Hey guys, I'm excited today. I have with me uh, Jan Holden. Um, she's uh, done a lot of research and has a lot of titles, so I'll just kind of let her introduce herself. I don't want to slaughter slaughter everything. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kendall. Uh, I don't think you'd slaughter it, but I'm happy to introduce myself. <laughs> um, I have a doctor of education degree in counselor education. So um, I got a master's and doctorate in, in counseling and uh, was on faculty at the University of North Texas teaching counseling from 1988 through 2019. So 31 years. And uh, and then I retired in, from the university in 2019. And since then, I've remained very professionally active and um, most significantly, I guess, I've been serving as president of the International Association for Near-Death Studies. And that's because I, um, you know, a, a professor's job actually has three parts. Teaching is only a third of it. Mm. A third is service. And then the other third is research. And my research, uh, all those three decades, was on the counseling implications of near-death experiences, after-death communication, um, what the whole um, gamut of what I call transpersonal experiences. And so, um, so that was that was, and that involved not only how these kinds of issues are addressed in counseling, but Counseling is based in a philosophy of um, the of the mind, and mm -hmm. so the um, the implications of these kinds of experiences. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> yeah, the implications of these kinds of experiences for um, the relationship between mind and brain, and what that means about how we see ourselves and how we see our clients and, and humanity and purpose in life and all of that. So mm -hmm. it, it touches on everything from the um, moments of interaction in the counseling session, all the way to the big picture questions about life and death and purpose. Yeah, that's great. That's amazing. Obviously I'm all very interested in that. And yeah. um yeah, I've I've been wanting to have a episode for a while on the relationship between mental health and uh, mental illness and awakening or whatever language you want to use to call it, um, and maybe the overlap or differences. And then I heard about you and that you've kind of studied this, and so I was like, you would be the perfect guest. So I'm really excited. How did you? Um, get into this work from being a counselor? How do you have a personal story that kind of got you interested or maybe clients that have had these experiences and you're like, oh, I need education in this or how did that yeah. work out? Well, um, it's kind of a long story, but um, uh, first of all, just as a, a preteen and teenager, I was interested in phenomena that couldn't be easily explained. Mm -hmm. So I studied Edgar Cayce and, you oh, know, yeah, things like that, mm -hmm. mysticism and all that sort of thing. Um, and then uh, when I was, I think it was the summer between my sophomore and junior year of my undergraduate work, I was at home uh, for the summer and my father had read a book called The Great Soul Trial, and he gave it to me to read. And it's a, a nonfiction book about um, 
a reclusive miner from Arizona who are in the late 1960s, um, he used to, he lived a very ascetic life, just a, a little room in um, in some city in Arizona. And, uh, and he would go off doing mining expeditions uh, in the, in the mountains for two or three months. And then he'd come back, um, go to the bank with, you know, whatever he had mined and uh, got new provisions and then disappeared again for another couple of months. Well, one day he went off and, and he never came back. So seven mm. years later, the state of Arizona declared him dead and they opened his safe deposit box. And there they found several hundred thousand dollars, which was more money then than mm. it is now, you know, um, with a handwritten note that he wanted the money used for research on the survival of the human soul after death. Mm. So the state of Arizona did what they had to. They put a little notice in the paper and they figured they ran it for a week and as required and figured nobody would pay any attention to it. But over a hundred individuals and organizations came forward to try to claim the money. So the state of Arizona had to actually put on a trial where a judge heard all these people testify how they would use the money wow. to research this question. So the, the a lot of the book is transcripts from the court records of people like the research director from the American Society for Psychical Research, the research director from the Psychical Research Foundation testifying how they would use this money. And there's a longer story that's really interesting with a very ironic twist and all that, but I won't go into that just to say that this book, I now consider really to have been the most important, the most influential book of my life because mm. it opened, at the time I was at, at college, I was studying psychology and the whole thing then was behaviorism, which is just mm. the complete opposite right. of transpersonal. Yeah, mm. exactly. Skinner <laughs> and, and um, Pavlov and all that. But this book opened my mind to how a question that was very interesting to me about the survival of consciousness after death um, might be researched in a scientific ma manner. Hmm. So then um, fast forward, that was probably around 1970 and fast forward to about the middle of uh, mid 1980s, I was finishing my doctoral degree in counseling and it was time to do my dissertation. And uh, long story short, I started five different projects, each of which awarded, <laughs> you know, so it sounds started. like me. <laughs> Some interest. And finally, I decided to try a study related to near-death experiences. Mm. And I now think that the angels were just were sort of watching and saying, okay, now she's on number three. We'll wait for that one too. Now she's on number, okay, finally, she's on one that we can support. And that's the one that went all the way through and, and finished my doctoral degree. Well, mm. I was absolutely, you know, a lot of people, when they do a dissertation, they get sick of the subject because you have to mm -hmm. be so, you know, careful in everything you do. It just becomes mm -hmm. luck. But I was just the opposite. I was enthralled and I continue to be like mm -hmm. one of the um, perks of being a member of the International Association for Near Death Studies is that about every about once a month appears in your email box what we call the monthly NDE. And it's an NDE that one of our volunteers chooses from our archives to highlight because of some interesting features. When I see that email, 
even now, after all these years that I have interviewed, heard, read, like probably thousands of near-death experiences, Mm -hmm. when I see that, I practically always drop everything and open that email and read it. I'm still enthralled to hear people's stories. So, um, so it's been amazing. And I've had several uh, transpersonal experiences myself over the years, uh, starting in uh, adolescence, I had one experience, but then really more uh, early adulthood, they started happening much more. And I've had um, after death communication, mm. mystical experiences, a lot of precognition, a lot of deja vu, Mm. and uh, past life memories. So, you know, I've, I've wow. had lots of, lots of experience mm-hmm. in the transpersonal domain myself. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Um, yeah. About a, you know, I, I've talked about my own experience in the, a near-death experience book. It was uh, by PMH Atwater. She's a, yeah. she's a trip, <laughs> but yeah, she uh, is. Yeah, I appreciate her, her research. Um, but it related a lot to my own awakening and kind of helped me get into it uh, and get into the spiritual journey and figure out things. Um, and a while back, I used to, what was the website called? But basically, they had a bunch of near-death experience um, accounts and, and people would tell their story. And I used to read one a day. And yeah, there's something about them. They're just, um, they're, they just fill me with this light and love and um, a piece and it's not even the I mean it is the intellectual but it's more about just how it makes me feel and that connection to to God and, and, and the spiritual so uh, I totally understand what you're saying uh, it's it's amazing <laughs> yeah I, absolutely I still just draw so much inspiration from them too so it's the, they're great yeah, yeah. Uh, so I had a question so your own experiences do you think that they, and this is my question that I have with myself, maybe it's a combination. Is it something that you feel like you you did yourself to spur on these experiences or is it something that just happened to you or maybe kind of in between? <laughs> yeah, I would say in uh, in my case, they're almost all completely spontaneous and unanticipated. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm ashamed to say I'm abs- I'm a total failure in meditation. I'm just too <laughs> or, or too busy. I, I don't I don't want to take the time to meditate. But it doesn't mm. seem to have the absence of meditation doesn't <laughs> seem to have interfered with my having. There's hope for other people. They'll, they'll be yeah. glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, meditation, I'm sure absolutely facilitates experiences like this, but it definitely isn't necessary. Mm. They, mm. they happen to, um, you know, people all around the world. We we just know a lot about these experiences being very ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So, um, I, I, did I answer your question? Yeah, definitely. Um a follow-up question. Um, you know, I, I grew up Christian, and so whenever I had my awakening, it was very uh, hard to reconcile what I understood about that. Um, did you grow up religious, and did your experiences and research, how did that interact with each other? Yeah, um, I did grow up in the uh, liberal branch of the Lutheran Church, mm-hmm. and was, uh, you know, went to, went to 
um, services and Sunday school and all that stuff on a very regular basis until I was, uh, I think, 17. And um, and I, I couldn't um, reconcile the hypocrisy of my mother taking us to church every week, but then treating us uh, really psychologically mm. abusively. Mm. So the only way I knew to deal with that was to say, I'm not going to church anymore. <laughs> right. So I, I left Christianity and I really, um, I think kind of scapegoated the church, like mm. took it out of the church. <laughs> I really should have held my mother more responsible, <laughs> although mm. I did hold her responsible as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that by the time I was like reading about near-death experiences or reading about reading that, that book I mentioned. And then in uh, 78, I read Raymond Moody's book, Life oh, yeah. After Life, right. which mm-hmm. is his, he, it was published in 75. I was a little slow on the uptake, but um, uh, it's his book about near-death experiences that, that I now say after all the years of research that everybody has done as a follow-up to that book that opened the field of near-death studies, the way to summarize the results of all that research is to say what he said in that first book. <laughs> it was just, on. it's been mm-hmm. very, almost all of it has been just substantiated by further mm-hmm. research. So, um, so... I forgot what I where I was going. <laughs> oh yeah, just your um, relations with religion and then that oh, yeah. interaction. Right. Mm-hmm. So by the time I uh, was um, delving into rec- into these phenomena, I, I will say that another thing that helped me move in this direction was in my graduate school at Northern Illinois University in the counseling program there. Uh, it, it wasn't in the counseling program, but it was in the the College of Education that the program was part of. There was a course called um, Transpersonal Perspective in Education and Counseling. Hmm. And I had finished my master's degree in counseling and I was burned out. I was vowing never to take another <laughs> class again. And then uh, that this was back in the days when they actually sent the catalog to mm. your home in hard mm. copy. And I was, so I, it had been maybe a year since I'd finished and I was just leaping through and I saw this course and I thought, you know, that would just be fun to take. It sounds like really interesting. <laughs> well, it got me launched into my doctoral degree and, uh, and on the faculty there in my counseling program was a faculty member who was transpersonally oriented. So uh, I took a course in psychosynthesis and um, and other other um, courses related to the transpersonal domain. So that all helped. And and uh, and as I said, by that time I wasn't religiously affiliated. So I still consider myself to absolutely subscribe to Christian ethics and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. But I don't, I haven't been affiliated with the church, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for decades. Mm. Okay. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Thanks. Um, but, but your, your comment about reconciling it, your faith with your experiences right. is a real common aspect of um, spiritual awakening or mm-hmm. uh, what what I'll be 
talking about a spiritual emergence. I'm just going to keep asking you questions. We'll never get there. (laughs) (laughs) The things just keep coming to mind. Um, Mm -hmm. One thing I've, you know, I was in grad school for a while for counseling and it was just interesting to me. Um, so of course there's a part of psychology and, and psychologists that are interested in this trans, uh, transpersonal psychology. Um, and maybe existential kind of touches on that. Um, and you know, the, the spiritual part and um, I'm a big fan of young. We've talked about him before in the podcast and he was definitely into that. Yeah. Is that, how does that jive with mainstream psychology? Are they interested or is that accepted or is it kind of like, Oh, you're the ugly stepchild. We're going to hide in the basement or, or, you know, we're not sure about those other people that are into that. How does that, how do they view that? Yeah. Well, um, I think there's, there are, several perspectives going on. Um, one is the, the probably the most important one is that uh, every branch of uh, psychotherapy organization has a, uh, or every psychotherapy organization has a branch that addresses spirituality in counseling mm-hmm. and uh, includes attention to the transpersonal domain. And, um, and maybe it, I'll talk about those two words, spiritual and transpersonal here in a minute. Sure. But um, so, for example, in uh, the American Counseling Association has the um, Association for Spiritual, Ethical and Religious Values in Counseling, a cervic. And that's that's the main area where this is addressed in the uh, American Psychological Association. There is a transpersonal uh you know, shoot off group, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, offshoot group. Uh, So, um, so there is official recognition that of these phenomena. Mm -hmm. And uh, a few years ago, the um, American Psychological Association published a book called the varieties of anomalous experience Mm -hmm. that included chapters on mystical experience, near-death mm-hmm. experience, and so and psychic phenomena and things like that. So the, there's been, you know, very official um, attention to these topics. Uh, at the same time, the reality is that right now, philosophical materialism or physicalism mm, right. dominates science, and that mm-hmm. leaks into the helping the medical and helping mm-hmm. professions. And um, so some people look kind of askance on these topics, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that there is so much research on these experiences and their beneficial effects that um, and how people I actually did a study of near death experiencers who had been in counseling and and talked about their near death experience in counseling and a third of them reported that they felt psychologically harmed by Mm. the way their counselor responded to them. And, Mm. you know, the counselor didn't recognize what they were describing as a near-death experience. They would try to explain it away as a hallucination Mm. or a drug effect or Mm. something like that. They would um, 
pathologize the person, the experience or the person, sometimes even diagnosing people with mental disorder. Mm. And they would demonize the experience mm. and, and perceive it as somehow spiritually evil. Research shows that every one of those reactions is not supported by research. So in other words, NDEs are a thing that, mm-hmm. that need to be acknowledged. They cannot be explained by um, things like hallucination, drug effects, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, they are not associated with psychopathology, and they um, are not associated with psychospiritual damage, just the opposite. People become more spiritual in that they become like less materialistic, mm-hmm. more passionate, more concerned about others, and anything that by any definition would fit the idea of spiritual development. So, um, but that information hasn't filtered down to the front lines in a lot of the helping professions. So that's, this is one of my, like, don't get me started. things. <laughs> oh, I'm, that's what this is all about. <laughs> yeah, that's what this is all about. We're trying to, trying to get the word out so that people can be, because just the opposite of being harmed. If someone is responded to in a helpful way where, you know, that, the, the experience is recognized, it's acknowledged for being potentially real, it's not pathologized, not demonized, the the opportunity for the person to process the experience expands their spiritual development. So there's a lot of good that can be done if it's addressed properly and harm that can be done if it's not. So that's all part of my... yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's just get into it. So how did you, you know, after doing your study um, doctorate on near-death experiences, how did you get into your study study on uh, spiritual emergence or spiritual emergency and awakening? Yeah, well, it, it was a um, just kind of an inevitability because it's part of the whole transpersonal literature. Mm-hmm. So as I was reading and developing my you know, knowledge base, I I came across this concept. And I will say, because this is going to come into play in a minute, um, one of the books I was reading about NDEs was Ken Ring's book, Heading Toward Omega, which is about the after effects of near-death experiences. Mm, And so I was reading it just with absolute rapt attention until I got to this chapter near the end where he talks about some K thing that I never heard starts with the letter K that I never heard about and how it might be involved in near and I'm like whatever and I kind of went whoop, 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 through those pages and then the next chapter was once again back on the subject of the actual NDE after effects mm-hmm. well um so I'm I don't know what year that was but it was probably around around 1988. And in around 1990, one day I did a, um, here in, I live in the Dallas area, Dallas, Texas. And uh, I went, one of the things I learned about and had a little introduction to in my graduate work was holotropic breath work, Mm. which is Stanislav and Christina Groff's approach, non-drug approach to facilitate the same kinds of experiences mm-hmm. as people have under right. LSD. So um, it was a week weekend workshop, and 
uh, and so I I was the breather. I was the sitter. If you, if you know anything about what these, uh, well, I sat with someone else while they breathed, and then they sat with me while I breathed. Mm-hmm. And then at and there was discussion. They had some books for sale, so I bought a few books. That when I got in the car to drive home Sunday evening, I um, did something that I now realize was not very smart. Um, I had during my breathwork session, there had been some music playing and I asked my later, I asked my guy, what was that music? And he said it was the soundtrack to the movie, The Mission. So I and he had it for sale there on a CD. So I bought it. And as I got in the car to go home on Sunday night, I popped it into my CD Mm -hmm. player. Well, the music is so I'm just getting chills right now, just remembering mm-hmm. what the music is like. Mm-hmm. And it's so ethereal and uh, just spiritual. Mm-hmm. That at one point, the, the music went. Uh, and suddenly mm-hmm. in the middle of my back comes this pounding sensation that just pounds left and right up my back. And up into my head. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm I'm on the expressway driving. Oh. This is all happening. This is, this is you can have a kundalini awakening while driving. And <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> yeah. And um, so my first thought was to try to suppress it. So I, I'm like doing mm-hmm. this kind of imagery thing. Immediately got this crushing headache. So I did just the opposite and imagined the top of my head opening Mm -hmm. so that this could just like flow through me. The headache went away within a minute. And then, and this, this force um, uh, went from boom, boom, boom up my back into this like power surge, just surging up my back every like 20 to 40 seconds, I would say. And meanwhile, my hands and feet got just incredibly hot. Right. And, um, and, and, um, and just this sense of my entire body being energized. And uh, it was it, and I had no idea what the <laughs> part of my French was going on. <laughs> so um, I got home. And when I walked in, my husband was watching TV, got to a commercial. He, you know, muted it. Well, how was your day? I'm like, well, it was good, but this weird thing is happening. He was was a psychologist. And so I tell him about it. And he said, well, it sounds like something to just kind of stay with and wait and see what happens. And I and then he turned the TV back on. I was kind of like, you know, this is crazy for you to say. (laughs) But then I remembered uh, somehow it. I made the association with this K thing that Ring had talked about in that book. Mm-hmm. Well, it so happened I at this weekend I had bought uh, Stanislav and Christina Groff's book Spiritual Emergency. Mm-hmm. So I went out to my car, got the book, brought it in, went to the index, went to the K's started going down the list. And then I saw this word Kundalini in the, these pages. Mm-hmm. I went there and started reading. It's like, oh my God, this is what's happening to me. Mm-hmm. I'm having a Kundalini awakening. And it was absolutely, you know, facilitated by the breathwork session. Mm, right. You know, yeah. And so um, long story short for me, 
I did. And they, they did in the book, they said kind of what my husband said, just, you know, just let it be and see what happens and, you know, protect yourself from stress and, you know, and, and so for me over the course of the next few weeks, the, these energy surge things just became more spaced out and until they were only happening like once or twice a day. And then they stopped, except uh, like, for example, when I teach my course on the transpersonal perspective in counseling, and we're having discussions and things like that, sometimes I get kundalini surges then. Mm-hmm. Other other kind of um, transpersonally associated situations, I sometimes get that again. Mm-hmm. For me- If it, you meditated, you might feel it then too. I know. I, <laughs> I do it I, sometimes. You know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that's yeah. And, um, and I'm, I'm a little curious about that, but, uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No. So anyway, um, so that's, that's how I got into uh, really appreciating the concept of spiritual emergence and emergency. Mm-hmm. And um, I do want to say something about the word spiritual and transpersonal. Um, I'm going to use the word spiritual a lot, but mm-hmm. I just want to acknowledge that some people don't consider their experiences to be spiritual per se. Mm-hmm. And they, and, and I've had some people be really put off by the use of that word to refer to their experience. So I'm going to apologize in advance if that <laughs> happens for anybody here, but that's why I personally prefer the, the term transpersonal because it neutrally describes mm-hmm. what the, the, key feature of all these types of experiences, which is that the the experiencer in some way transcends, that's where the trans part comes in, transcends the usual personal limits of space, Mm. time, identity, or influence. And Mm. so in in, um, that happens in precognition, you're transcending the usual limits of time because you can't normally know the what's going to happen in the future, or mystical experience transcending space. After death communication, transcending space, you're not usually in the mm-hmm. same spaces, you know, right. people. And so um so that's that's my favorite word. But I do sometimes use spiritual because it's it's pretty pervasive in the literature. <laughs> And mm-hmm. I don't think when people use it that they mean to um, conjure up references to like religiosity or things like that. It's right, more like right. the domain of spirit, which is like as opposed to the domain of the material world. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I can uh, I can understand how you know people have, have triggers to, to certain things and that that makes sense. So I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um what would you like me to launch into a little mini lecture about the <laughs> spiritual emergency? Yeah, definitely go for go for it. So um the the term spiritual emergence and emergency are related. Spiritual emergence is when spiritual material emerges in a person's life in a form and force that the person can easily um, or at least reasonably easily manage. And so, for example, my kundalini awakening, I would say, was a spiritual emergence. There was something Mm -hmm. definitely happening there, but it didn't overwhelm me or make me 
um, unable to function or anything like mm. that. And so if you just change the word emergence to emergency, that's when the form and force of the material is greater than the person has the capacity to cope with. Mm-hmm. And so they feel either psychologically overwhelmed or their functioning is impaired or or maybe both. And uh, so uh, it's the emergency is the is the one that tends to require um, immediate attention mm-hmm. if somebody's um, psychologically or physically not functioning well. Mm. Um, and so spiritual emergency can take any of a number of forms with a lot of different possible symptoms. Um, I know in your awakening, you said that you felt a lot of um, shaking mm-hmm. and, um, and, and there is this experience that some people have of Kundalini with energy surging up the, the spine mm-hmm. and heat. Um, there can be visions. There can be hearing um, voices that um, are talking about spiritual things. Mm-hmm. Um, and there can be like um, high energy that makes um, makes it possible to concentrate for long periods of time, longer than usual, Dif- maybe um, decreased eating, decreased sleeping. Um, Guilty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think anybody who's experienced spiritual emergency can relate to one or more of those, uh, mm. those kinds of symptoms. And so... Um, I know in your case, uh, you were diagnosed with uh, bipolar and your episode was labeled a manic episode. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's a a big topic in this whole domain of spiritual emergence and emergence, especially emergency, is what's called differential diagnosis. How do we diagnose spiritual emergency? from psychosis mm-hmm. which is which bipolar is a form of you know mm-hmm. mental disorder and uh, and so maybe i should say it that way um spiritual emergency from mental disorder of any kind mm-hmm. and um and it's a tricky question because at the front end there can be a lot of overlap of symptoms like you know the uh, in your case the long periods of reading eating less, sleeping less, uh, energized and, um, and very focused on spiritual kinds Mm -hmm. of matters and things like that. And hearing a voice, you know, as you did, um, Mm -hmm. that all can sound like mania, Mm -hmm. um, but the, there are some important differentiating factors. And before I get into those, let me explain why it's important to differentiate. So I'm a devotee of Ken Wilber's Integral Hmm. Psychology, and he divides human development into three main phases or stages. Pre-personal, which is our our functioning from birth to age seven, approximately. Personal, starting at seven, 
and going up at least to 18, but um, could, or 21 could be, could be many people stay in the personal level all their life. Mm-hmm. And the transpersonal level, the potential begins around age 21 mm-hmm. uh, to, to launch into that. Uh, that be uh, w- uh, correlating with the development of the prefrontal cortex. Well, you know, I, he doesn't say that, but I think that's a possibility that uh, because they, they say, you know, we don't really reach complete maturity until right. like the early twenties and things mm-hmm. like that. So yeah, because at age seven, there's this very recognized shift in developmental psychology between non-rational thinking prior to that age and the emergence of rational thinking, um, you know, like try to explain, we'll go to grandma's in a week to a four-year-old, mm-hmm. you know, they just don't have the <laughs> Right, the time ahead, yeah. Mm-hmm. That whole time and reasoning, they just can't do it. But um, but an eight-year-old can. So, um, so the pre-personal stage is dominated by pre-rational thinking. And pre-rational thinking is not logical. It's non-rational. Mm-hmm. Okay, then around age seven, we develop this capacity for rational thinking, and that begins to dominate our functioning. We think rationally. Well, in the trans-rational um, domain that start the potential starts around age 21, but I should hasten to say anybody can have a transpersonal experience at any age. Mm. It's about whether your functioning, your holistic functioning is really um, oriented around uh, one of these ways of pre-rational, rational, or Mm -hmm. trans-rational thinking. And trans-rational thinking is also non-rational. Right. I'm sure it often gets confused by the rational with the pre-rational. Exactly. And that's what what Wilbur calls the pre-trans-rational fallacy. When somebody looks at a transpersonal experience and mistakenly, because it's non-rational, categorizes it as pre-rational. The reason it's so important to make that differentiation is that the way to respond to these, the the first, the pre-rational experience, which is characteristic of psychosis, that's where the person really has does not have the capacity to exercise rationality and they're, they're victim to um, their, you know, brain functioning in a way that, that um, causes them to be non-rational. That requires a, um, a protective environment, medication, and, monitoring and those those sorts of things that help the person to get stabilized and and gain or regain their rational functioning Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um if somebody has a transpersonal experience uh, we call those pre-rational experiences regressive because the person's going backwards kind of developmentally into a pre-rational state when they're in like a psychotic episode, let's say. Mm. But for somebody having a trans-rational experience, that's what we call a progressive 
And what is needed is not necessarily, in in most cases, there are exceptions to this, but in most cases, you don't need medication. You do need uh, the protected environment and the um, facilities in which the processing of the material that's emerging can get can get facilitated. You know that Mm -hmm. that it's uh, integrated and yeah, exactly Mm -hmm. integrated. And so. If we treat somebody who is having a transpersonal experience pre-rationally, we actually abort the process and stop the good stuff from happening that, that, mm-hmm. that has the potential to happen. Now, conversely, it's also possible for, you know, woo-woo people to consider any pre-rational um, experience to be transrational and mm-hmm. treat it like that, where right. the person, you know, like meditate, you know, that the last thing somebody in a psychotic episode needs to do is meditate. They mm-hmm. need to be, you know, um, protected and, and helped with medication. And so, um, so it's, it's cheating the person, either somebody actually having a pre-rational to be treated transrationally or transrational to be treated pre-rationally. So it's mm-hmm. really important to differentiate between them. Well, the problem as we started talking about before was, is that there can be a lot of similar symptoms because they're both non-rational mm-hmm. processes going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but here are some of the key things to look for. Well, First, let me say the the best way to differentiate is to know the outcome because the outcome of a pre-rational condition, if treated well, is that the person's functioning rationally. Mm. The outcome of a transpersonal experience, if treated properly, is spiritual, psycho-spiritual growth. Mm. And so um they're they're like more more connected to the mm-hmm. transpersonal domain. Mm-hmm. So so there, there's a very different outcome, but it doesn't help if somebody comes into my office telling me about what they're experiencing to say, well, we have to wait to find out what happens. What's going on right now? Uh-huh. So here are some of the key things to look for. The first one is, um, and I wouldn't say the first, these are all equally important, but the first thing that I look at is, does this person have a history of psychopathology? If they do, there's a greater chance, it's not a guarantee, but a greater chance that what they're experiencing right now is also psychopathology, pre-personal, you know, needs to be treated that way. But mm-hmm. that's only one thing. Um, and having a History of psychopathology doesn't guarantee that what you're experiencing right now is psychopathology. It also, if you don't have a history, it doesn't mean that what you're <laughs> couldn't be psychopathology. Right. You know, there's still those possibilities, but these are, we're looking for tendencies. The second thing is um, a, a phenomenon called insight. And in this case, insight means that the client conveys the awareness that what they're experiencing is in essence weird. Mm -hmm. 
because if a person's having a transpersonal experience, they almost always will start by saying something like, all right, you're probably going to think this sounds crazy, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. or I know this sounds weird, but, mm-hmm. or I've never known of anything like this to happen to anybody, but here's what's happening. Mm-hmm. Have an awareness. That awareness, it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, um, and I've hardly ever heard a near-death experiencer report their experience without somewhere in the process saying, I know that sounds crazy, but, mm-hmm. and it, it's kind of like, I'm so glad you said that because, you know, you're just <laughs> confirming that you've had a transpersonal mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. People who are in psychosis or um, mental disorder usually don't, do not have insight. Now, I can't say never, but mm-hmm. usually do not have insight. They're usually dominated by their symptoms, and um, but like especially in psychosis, they um, they at, in in the psychosis they perceive the hallucinations to be real, and they're um, uh, plagued by them because usually psychotic hallucinations are negative. In mm-hmm. and this is actually another of the differentiating features. Um, in psychosis, pre-personal disorders, the um, the experience is usually extremely distressing, and mm-hmm. the voices that people hear, mm-hmm. um, the hallucinations they have are upsetting. You know, voices telling them to kill themselves or that they're worthless, mm-hmm. or, you mm-hmm. know, that sort of thing. Whereas in uh, transpersonal experiences, the voices tend to be uplifting. Um, you know, positive, um, helpful, um, emotionally pleasurable. Mm. And, um, and so, um, so we've talked about history, insight, and, and just to make sure it's clear that the uh, people in pre-personal conditions don't have, they don't have that distance. They're, they are completely dominated by, Uh, immersed in the experience right and they don't have that step back and see what's happening and think oh this is strange uh Um, and then the nature of the experiences uh, in psychosis tends to be distressing in transpersonal tends to be uplifting but sometimes too uplifting Uh turns it into (laughs) (laughs) and then um uh, and then an, another factor is whether the uh, the client who's sitting in front of me can form a therapeutic relationship with me that's characterized by a, a genuine exchange of information. Um, and so uh, they can say, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I can say, you know, it sounds like the, what you're, you might be experiencing like something called kundalini awakening. And if they can say, what's that? You know, and I could say, oh yeah. I mean, it's something not well known in Western, the Western mm-hmm. world, but it's very well known in the Eastern world and blah, blah, blah. So there's this exchange. And, uh, and there's even the, um, what's called mutual empathy. Not only am I understanding what's happening for the client, but they are empathic with me when something happens like, I have to be late for the session. You know, they can be understanding and forgiving as opposed to um, thinking that I 
meant something by, you know, mm-hmm. being late. Um, mm-hmm. So the the ability to form a, a mutually um, empathic and uh, um, compassionate therapeutic relationship is another feature that indicate if the person can do that, they're probably in spiritual emergency rather than psychosis. Mm. So if you put all those together, you know, if you've got somebody who has no history of psychopathology, they um, have insight that what they're experiencing is unusual. Um, they're, their uh, symptoms are, you know, kind of spiritual in nature, and they are, I, I can feel this, you know, good mutual relationship between us. Almost certainly the person is in spiritual emergency. I am not going to refer them to a psychiatrist, um, at least not initially, and um, especially if there, it may be that their life feels out of control internally and or externally, but I would give us a week or two of trying things to bring life into, into more control. And if that happens, then we're able to um, proceed with integrating uh, what's happening and, um, and, and they get the positive outcome that um, there's the potential for. So I've said a lot. Would you like to say something? <laughs> yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking about the DSM and 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 mentalness. And so, what I've theorized is, I wonder if psychotic episodes are also spiritual experiences. They're just lower you know or perhaps and it's it's about yeah recognizing um not to say hey not to say that they're not there's not hallucinations they're not things that are just from themselves but maybe they are hearing Mm -hmm. spiritual entities that are telling them very dark things um and it's about learning to handle that and then um learning to focus on on the more positive and um and not just saying hey that's all that's all false or whatever that's just you um you know having a mental illness um because you know there there's a lot of overlap as far as like you know people who you know claim that they're communicating with with spirits and then that's also, you know, a lot of um, schizophrenia, you know, you're hearing voices. It's like, well, <laughs> so, so. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really agree with what you're saying that in, in a generic sense, everything that we experience in life is essentially spiritual, but there might be an explicit spiritual aspect to psychosis and, and that that needs to be addressed. The thing is, you said, you know, um, that the the goal is for the purpose for the the purpose is for the person to learn to kind of like manage that and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. The thing about psychosis is it isn't always possible for the mm. person to get that distance and that right. you know, mastery over what's mm-hmm. happening. 
And mm-hmm. so there may need to be treatment of the regressive symptoms, you know, with medication mm-hmm. and stuff right. like that. But mm-hmm. um, but absolutely, uh, ultimately, that is the that is the goal for them mm-hmm. to be able to. And uh, there was an interesting uh, one of my favorite recent books is Bruce Grayson's book After. He is the leading researcher of near death experiences, and he recently wrote this book uh, after uh, as his the memoir of his um, his career in as a near-death researcher. And one day he was interviewing a young man who had jumped off of a building and um to kill himself. And uh and the and Bruce was say, asking him, you know, what was happening, what had been happening for him and what was happening, you know, moment to moment at, leading up to his jump. And he said that he uh, heard a voice telling him he was worthless and he mm-hmm. there was no hope and he should just kill himself. So he jumped off the building and then he said he heard God's voice say, um, you're my child and you are good and you're going to survive this. And then, of mm-hmm. course, he did survive. Mm-hmm. And Bruce said to him, you know, how did you know the difference between <laughs> the psychotic mm-hmm. voice and God's mm-hmm. voice? And he said, you just know, he said, mm. it's, it's completely different. The quality of it is completely different. You know, that, that the psychotic voice is um, unrelenting and, uh, mm. and. Dear and guilty. Yes. Mm. Yes. And God's voice is gentle and um, reassuring and encouraging mm-hmm. and uh, and he, he said um you know there's just no comparison they're just two mm-hmm. totally different things mm-hmm. so um so i think that's that's instructive for those of us trying to understand the differences between mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. Kind of different kinds of things right i have someone i know unnamed um who had an awakening and also very similar sort of me and is put in psych ward and stuff like that. But he had a very mixed where it was very uplifting at one moment and then very dark the other moment. And thinking back my own experience, it was very positive in the light side of it. But there were times where I felt kind of like, man, I'm kind of, I'm feeling stretched. I'm at the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm using a lot of energy and burning a lot of energy. I'm not sleeping and I can feel this starting to take a toll a little bit, or I was feeling a little paranoid or getting a little, I was losing sense of reality um, towards the end. So what, yeah. what about those experiences that are more kind of mixed? Yeah. So um, in your case in particular, I this is, this is now we move into how does a, transpersonally informed counselor work with somebody who's experiencing spiritual emergency. So I know we're audio here, but if we were visual, it Mm -hmm. would be easy for me to show you. So imagine (laughs) a horizontal line and in the middle is, um, uh, is an, a line, a vertical line going up. And 
at one end of the horizontal line is spiritual repression. And that's where um, Roberto Asagioli talked about um, repression of the sublime, where a person's like completely out of touch with spirituality. At the other end, the other extreme of the horizontal line is spiritual emergency, where the person is overwhelmed with spiritual material. In the middle is the place of spiritual emergence, where the material Mm. comes in a form and force that is essentially digestible. Mm. And the vertical line that goes up from there is the potential for spiritual development. It comes out of that middle place. So with spiritual emergency, one of the first things that needs to be addressed is how to help the person go from that extreme to the middle place and through what are called grounding techniques. Mm. So um, it would involve like um, purposely starting to eat regularly and Mm -hmm. include red meat Mm -hmm. because that's very grounding. Mm -hmm. And like, don't do your vegetarian thing right now. (laughs) That's That puts Mm -hmm. you over toward the, you know, that extreme. Mm Um, stop meditating right now uh, for the time being, not forever, just for now. And, um, and then participate in activities that are very grounding, like literally do gardening, you know, mm-hmm. like work with mm-hmm. the ground, mm-hmm. but also, um, you know, go for a bicycle ride, um, um, go for a walk and, um, and, um, like watch TV, things that are not going to, you know, upset you mm-hmm. um, things that, that take you essentially take you back to earth, take you mm. away from the spiritual domain back to earth. And for most people, um, in my limited experience, um, those kinds of grounding strategies, um, help them move back to that moderate place where then you're not like burning all that energy and, you know, mm-hmm. you're like, you know, uh, threatening to burn out or something. <laughs> right. um, and, and then um, gradually introducing more um, spiritual practices and things like that as keeps you in that middle ground where you can keep, you know, stuff keeps coming up and it's, it can be integrated. Mm -hmm. You can, you know, move up that vertical line of um, spiritual development. Cause if you're over at that extreme in spiritual emergency, you don't have access to that vertical growth. Mm -hmm. You're you're stuck in this, you know, um, extreme state Mm -hmm. of overwhelm. Yeah. Right. And in my research and well, my own experience as well, is that, you know, oftentimes after these experiences, people go through the dark night of the soul because their paradigm of what reality is, has been shattered in in their beliefs. And so then it's like, well, what do I believe? What is real? (laughs) What is going on? And so it's very disorienting. It's like, well, what's my rock to hold on to that I can know? And, and you, you have to do, you have to do the work and to, to, what was my experience? What did I learn from that? What, what do other people experience? And um, 
yeah, or else you, you just kind of lost. And I was kind of in this lost zone for, for, for years because I didn't know to trust that that was a real experience, but, but my body knew it was, you know, but yeah. I know you're like a case study of the kind of thing that just makes me crazy. (laughs) And that's, it's, that's so uh, such a, a theme that I've run into is people who, you know, somehow came out of the spiritual emergency, usually through, you know, rougher means than having a, um, a, a knowledgeable counselor, um, and uh, and then go for uh, some sometimes years without really acknowledging what what happened the what happened and the potential for what happened to be spiritually developmental, and so it's it's just it's so important, yeah. And so one of the things we're doing in IANS right now. So if any of your listeners are mental health professionals who are licensed in the U.S. who have had actual coursework um, about transpersonal phenomena, and I'll explain what would qualify as that in a minute. Um, I would encourage them to go to the IANS website. It's iands.org. I'll put it in the show notes as well. Okay, great. And find the... um, uh, application to be listed on our website as a transpersonally competent mental health provider. Hmm. And we're just now, um, we've done our first wave of applications. We've just figured out who's approved and we're about to do post the listing for the first time on the website. It'll probably be like actually a week or two from now, but we're going to keep you know, people can keep applying to be added to the website. And what we're looking for is people who either have a an entire degree in transpersonal counseling, like um, the, those degrees are offered at places like the California Institute for Integral Studies uh, and Naropa Institute. There might be a, a few other, a couple other places, not many. Um, that's pretty rare. To have somebody mm-hmm. who has their like their whole doctorate in transpersonal right. counseling, um, or if they've taken a course in transpersonal counseling, I have taught one at the University of North Texas. I teach it every other year, and uh, a very similar course is taught at William and Mary University. And um, I'm hoping to be able to uh, offer my course online so anyone anywhere in the U.S. can take it. And um, so if you've taken a course like that, you qualify. Or if you've been um, certified by the American Center for the Integration of Spiritually Transformative Experience. (laughs) What a Um, mouthful. Yeah, but the acronym is A-C-I-S-T-E pronounced assist because their whole goal is to assist people mm-hmm. who've had transpersonal experiences mm-hmm. and need to integrate them. Mm-hmm. And so they have in the past done a, a um, certification process. They're, they're not doing it right now. The organization is um, has floundered a little bit, but they're getting their footing again. But in the meantime, anybody who has that um, certification would qualify uh, for our listing as well. And, and what we're hoping to happen 
is that people like you, who at whatever point they realize that what they experienced might have actually been a spiritual emergence or mm-hmm. emergency, um, can go to this to our website and go to their state because uh, licensed mental health providers are usually limited to working only in the state where they're licensed. So we're going to organize it by state. So you can, you go to your state and then you see all the people listed um, who have um, passed our screening and, um, and, and where their primary practice is located. And, uh, and you can maybe find a place near you or, and it also will say if they do telemedicine, meaning that mm-hmm. they can really work with anybody in their state via mm-hmm. like Zoom or, or right. um, confidential. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Yeah. 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 yeah I think the, the, you know, awakenings or spiritual emergence emergency is only going to increase, um, you know, just researching about near-death experiences because of our technology, uh, you know, we're able to revive people even after they saw breathing. And, and so there's a lot more near-death experiences than there used to be. And then I know things like psychedelics uh, can cause these type of experiences. And um, that's, that's only increasing as well. So yep. um, interesting exactly. times. Yeah. yeah. You, I couldn't say it better. You just said it perfectly. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if, what you think are about um, ETs and that, that kind of thing. And I know that's in the news too. And and then people have spiritual experiences with those kind of things and they have to integrate those as well. That's exactly right. Yeah. Ken Ring wrote a book, the Omega project where he compared mm-hmm. near death experiencers with um, ET experiencers mm-hmm. and found a lot of similarities. Right. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I absolutely am on board with ET experiences. I've had clients who've reported them who were, you know, absolutely grounded, mm-hmm. um, people and, um, and, um, yeah, so I just, I just know it happens. I don't know exactly what to make of them, mm-hmm. but I'm absolutely sure they happen and they have spiritual implications for people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Well, this is, this has all been, been really good. I really, really enjoyed it. A lot of great information. I appreciate you. Great. Oh, my pleasure. Um, it, any other questions or any, any stone that we have left? on? <laughs> yeah. I feel like I, 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 there's a lot to digest. It's hard for me to organize my thoughts now on everything. But, yeah. Well, but yeah, uh, let me, great. let me emphasize one other a point that I made, but I think may have gotten lost. And that is that sometimes people in spiritual emergency are so overwhelmed by what they're experiencing that even though they have that insight and everything, they just can't get grounded on their own. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, you know, I'm in favor, if they're not, if they're, if their well-being or the well-being of other people isn't in imminent danger, I'm in favor of first trying grounding techniques mm-hmm. to bring mm-hmm. them back to that middle point and, and give it a week or two. And if that doesn't happen, then do consider a psychiatric referral right. so that they mm-hmm. can get, you know, what, whatever protective and medication things mm-hmm. will help them. 
And and what's implicit also in what I said is if there is danger to themselves or other people, then immediately jump to the psychiatric mm. right. uh, referral. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but but uh, I but very much I think in in our current climate, there's just immediate jumping to psychiatric. Right. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a that's a a part of the conversation, but it's a whole nother thing we could really get into, which don't probably don't have time for, for today. But I, 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 you know, I'm not against medicine. Um, you know, if it, it's needed, like you said, I think you said it really well, but I would also say, um, you know, if, if you are at a point where you're, you're doing well and, um, you know, you consult with others, um, that you might be able to get off medicine. It's not something that you, necessarily need the rest of your life is just to, um, I would say medicine is to help, um, with symptoms rather than it's not a cure. Yes, exactly. Well, I, I agree with you. Uh, I, I will say that I do know, I have had some clients who tried to get off their medication and, and after years of being, you mm. know, just stable and good mm-hmm. and like thing well maybe you could and then mm-hmm. their symptoms recur oh. so mm-hmm. i i look on their condition as being kind of the same as like diabetes you know if mm. you if your um pancreas doesn't produce insulin it's just not going to produce insulin mm. and you got to do insulin for the rest right. of your life type mm-hmm. one diabetes um if your brain is uh producing chemicals in a you know unusual way it's just going to do that and and you need mm-hmm. medication and that said, I I agree with you that I think probably the um, maybe even a majority of people might be able to go off medication um, once they're stabilized, mm-hmm. and and that that's a that again that's another leaning of our current culture is toward just go on the medication and right. assume that you need it for the rest of your life, and mm-hmm. you know that, and I think it's absolutely worth doing some experimentation mm-hmm. around that. And yeah. especially when the, the, um, the uh, instigating condition may have been spiritual emergency, it's important to go off medication once you're um, stabilized because the medication can actually interfere with mm-hmm. spiritual material coming in and being mm-hmm. and being integrated. Right. You, know, you mentioned that like being on the medication made you feel sort of zombie-like and mm-hmm. probably probably did interfere with your connection to mm-hmm. the spiritual domain. And mm-hmm. so um again, there's potential for growth in that connection and and it needs not to be um stifled. Right. I think Young has a lot to say about, um, you know, if a man is not connected to the spiritual, then that can cause psychosis and that can cause mental issues. So, you know, I think, you know, we're made to be spiritual beings and I mean, you don't have to call it spiritual again. And um, that can be various forms, but but that connection to the world and the universe and and a a force at work for good um, is very important to the human psyche. Yeah. So well said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, I can, I could just, you've got such a a joy about you and, uh, 
it's been great to interact with you. And of course, your knowledge and your experience is um, very valuable and, and appreciated. You're so welcome, Kendall. It's been my pleasure. And, and you know, I just, I really enjoy especially doing programs like this with interviewers who really get it and you really get it. Like <laughs> you, you said so many things that I would have said virtually the same way. It, it just mm-hmm. was really great, great experience. Thank yeah. you. Yes, ma'am. All right.